Hello, you're listening to the No Fucks Given podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Knight, author of the No Fucks Given Guides, a series of self-help books for people like me who hate being told what to do. Just like the books, the podcast is fun, sweary, and full of tips and techniques for giving fewer, better fucks and living your best life. Let's get to it. First, thank you so much for listening. This podcast is exceeding uh, all of my expectations for listenership and fans, and it's been so amazing to see it climbing up the charts in just three short months that we've been on air. And I really appreciate every single one of you who's tuning in every week, who's subscribing, who's telling their friends, uh, and especially leaving ratings and reviews. So thank you very much, and welcome to episode 15. This is a continuation of last week's theme, if you're not doing you, you're screwing you. So as you probably know from listening last week, I wrote a book called You Do You, which is all about building confidence in who you are and what you want out of life, operating from the perspective that there's nothing wrong with you and that whatever flaws other people might feel the need to point out to you all the goddamn time, they're probably actually strengths and uh, and unique characteristics that make you you. So we just need to learn how to wield them. Last week was mostly about how to stop giving a fuck about what other people think, because you can't control what other people think. You can only control you, your own behavior, your own wants, needs, desires. And this week is more about working on that what you think, what you think about how you think, uh, and building confidence in what makes you, you. This week, I'm going to dig up a couple more clauses from the social contract that I mentioned before. Um, In particular, do your best and don't be difficult. Fuck that shit. Uh, I'm going to talk to you about what I call mental redecorating. This is different from mental decluttering, which I have talked about before on the podcast. Mental decluttering is about making choices, you know, deciding what you don't give a fuck about and then organizing your life around the stuff you do give a fuck about. Mental redecorating is more about shifting your mindset. It's looking at you and your life and your choices from a slightly different perspective, a more compassionate perspective, uh, a more confident perspective. So much more on mental redecorating to come. I'm also going to lay down tons of lessons that I've learned about perfectionism and how to combat it, and also lots of tips and strategies for being just as difficult as you want to be in a way that serves you, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Finally, as always, listen to the end for your NFG tip of the week. And don't forget, you can visit my website, nofucksgivenguides.com, for more info on my books and journals and for the show notes and links to downloads and anything else I might mention on the podcast. All right, here we go. I am Sarah Knight, and I am a recovering perfectionist. I struggle every day with not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. In fact, doing this podcast is a perfect (laughs) A perfect example. I am constantly refining, re-recording, rewriting, planning and over-planning what I want to say to you guys. And on the one hand, the podcast is a hit and that's fabulous and I'm really happy about it. But on the other hand, I know that I am dipping way too deep into my fuck budget to get things just so because of my tendencies toward perfectionism. If I gave 90% or sometimes even 70 or 80% of what I'm capable, it would sound just as good to your average person. So 
I got to work on that. And I'm partly doing that here on this episode for my own damn self. And I'm partly doing it to help you work through any perfectionist tendencies that are getting in the way of living your best life. And I acknowledge that not everyone is as crippled by perfectionism as I am. It's a sliding scale. But it's the clause I struggle most with in the social contract, that constant background hum of do your best. You know, it comes from parents, it comes from teachers, it comes from coaches, it comes from bosses. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to have integrity, being ambitious, you know, being careful about your work and your art. But this idea of do your best can burrow its way into the minds of people like me and really become much more toxic and unhelpful than it was intended. And now that I have some uh, authority as a self-help guru, whatever that means, uh, I often get asked, what is the advice that you would give your younger self? And it's always, you don't have to be perfect. This is the thing I wish I had known when I was 8, 9, 10, 13, 18 years old. So coming up, I am going to offer four lessons that I have learned from a lifetime of perfectionism and four tips to help you apply them. Lesson number one to combat perfectionism is you have to cut yourself some slack every once in a while or one day you're going to ruin Christmas. I learned this lesson the hard way. When I was 17 years old, I went off to college. So this was September of 1996. And I let my perfectionist tendencies run wild. I was burning the candle at every single end and then some, both, you know, going to school and diving into these classes and really difficult and challenging coursework, but also doing all that other freshman year stuff that kids who just got released from a lifetime of living under their parents' roof tend to do. And I got sick. It started out as like a cold, maybe a sinus infection, and it got worse and worse, and I didn't do anything to slow down and help myself. If anything, I doubled down because I was afraid that being sick would put me behind both in my academic life and my social life. So I just pushed on through. And fast forward a few months to my 18th birthday in December of that year, and I had basically like, and I'm not kidding here, a golf ball-sized lump in my neck. I don't know if it was like a node. I don't know what's going on in your neck. But I was flat on my back, clammy, pale, um, completely out of it in my dorm room twin bed. My friends were coming by, these new friends that I had just known for a couple of months. And they looked real worried. You know, they were bringing me orange juice from store 24 and telling me that I should go to the nurse. And I couldn't even get out of bed. I was so fucking exhausted. And the thing on my neck was disgusting and very worrisome. And all I could do was just hold out for Christmas break. And I went home and, you know, I did nothing and I had no fun and I worried my family. And I spent a couple more weeks flat on my back in my childhood bedroom just recovering from what I believe to be stress-induced, uh, toxin-induced just exhaustion that had manifested itself in this weird thing on my neck and that had cast a serious and totally unnecessary and avoidable pall over the fall of my freshman year of college, which should have been a grand old time. So that's lesson number one. Cut yourself some slack or someday you will ruin Christmas. 
Lesson number two is stop and smell your new business cards. Listen, guys, ambition is great, but if you are always chasing a personal best, then that means you are never satisfied with what you've already accomplished. And that's just sad. Uh, When I graduated from college and I moved to New York City and I started working in the publishing industry, I was just constantly in pursuit of the next thing. The raise, the promotion, the graduation from a cubicle to an office, um, acquiring my first book, seeing my first book hit the bestseller list. And I never stopped and enjoyed those benchmarks as they came. I mean, the day that I got my first business cards with my name and my phone number and my email address on them, certainly it was a reason to celebrate, and I'm sure I did. But I definitely just forgot about all of the hard work and effort uh, that had gone into that step by the next week. I just was back to wanting more, wanting something different, uh, feeling like, I hadn't done it all yet, and that is what perfectionism will do to you. This idea, as I said, of chasing your personal best, you know, it means that you always think you can do better and therefore you are not satisfied with what you have, and that's a real problem. It's no way to live. So that's lesson number two. Stop and smell your new business cards. You know, allow yourself to revel in the successes before you get hell-bent on doing something bigger and better. And just on a personal note here, um, I have really tried to resist going back and re-recording a bunch of this stuff. Uh, What I do is I record and then I listen back to the last, you know, two minutes and I decide if it's good enough and if it's not, I redo it. And if it's not, I redo it again. And for this episode, I am doing my best to just power on through. So I am trying to practice what I preach here. And uh, I think that that feeds in to lesson number three, which is perfectionism is in the eye of the beholder. No matter how hard you push yourself and how well you do or do not think you've done, there is always going to be someone to criticize you. I learned this when I was a young assistant to a literary agent, and I just thought I was going to be the best assistant she'd ever had. I was going to prove myself. I was going to organize her office. I was going to make her clients love me. I was going to become indispensable. And yet she always found a reason to criticize a thing that I had done wrong. Often it was unreasonable, but it made me feel terrible about myself. And, you know, fast forward 20 years or so, and I've got this podcast and every once in a while I get a listener email or I read a shitty review of somebody who's complaining about the way I did something that I thought was really good. And you just have to remember that there are so many people out there in the world and you cannot control their opinions of you. You have to stop giving a fuck about what they think. And you have to realize that the perfectionism isn't only your problem, it's other people's problems too. They're judging you to an impossible standard the same way you're judging yourself. So you gotta let that shit go. And finally, lesson number four is dial it back on the getter done. If you're always perfect, people will start taking advantage of that and kicking everything to you. It's like other kids copying your paper uh, back in grade school and coworkers just shoving all of the group work onto you and taking the credit. Frankly, sometimes it's better to take your foot off the gas so that other people have to worry about doing their best for a change. 
Okay, so I hope my fellow perfectionists out there are smelling what I'm cooking. And next, I am going to give you four practical tips to help ratchet down those perfectionist tendencies. And after that, we'll move into another clause in the social contract, don't be difficult. Also, a favorite of mine to bend and break. Tip number one for cutting yourself some slack, lower the bar. This is one of my all-time favorite life hacks, and I got it from Ina Garten, the barefoot Contessa herself. I love her so much, and one time I randomly read that when Ina Garten plans a dinner party, and keep in mind that this woman has tens of millions of copies of best-selling cookbooks and is an entertainer extraordinaire, uh, when she plans a dinner party and she plans out the menu, she automatically cuts one or two dishes before she even goes grocery shopping. She knows her tendency is to overdo it, so she does herself a favor by lowering the bar. She just cuts a couple of dishes and goes to the grocery store and has that many fewer ingredients to buy and that many fewer dishes to prepare when the time comes. It's a really good way to think about your life. If you're a perfectionist overachiever, you might just want to make your plans and then edit them down before you take the steps to execute them. Tip number two is look around you, okay? The world is full of dumbasses who are just coasting through. And I guarantee that if you look at your friends, your family, your coworkers, you can pick out at least three people who are doing life a lot less perfectly than you are, and they're totally getting away with it. So I think you can take a three-day weekend. Tip number three is be the first to fuck shit up. My dad and I have the same perfectionist tendencies, and I clearly remember that when he got a brand new car in like 1987, it had brown suede interior, and he promptly took myself, my mom, and my very young brother, my, my toddler age brother, out to an ice cream place. And we ate our ice cream in the car so that if anything bad was going to happen to mar the perfect interior of his brand new car, basically he had been in charge of letting it happen. He had been the one who had opened the door and become at one with the possibility. And as a result, he could stop torturing himself uh, in the future with imagined horrors. You know, he had already decided that it was going to be okay to fuck this up on his own terms. And so whatever happened down the road would be a mental battle he'd already fought and won. And my final tip to combat perfectionism and not worry so much about doing your best, even though you may have a lifetime of conditioning in doing so, is to talk to literally any old person. They have been through it all, and they know that there's no point in worrying about being perfect every goddamn day. You know, there are always these headlines going around, top 10 lessons we learn from people on their deathbeds, and it's always, I should have taken more time off, I should have developed more hobbies, I should have traveled more. It's never, I should have doubled down on being perfect. So that's tip number four. And like I said earlier, I hope that all of these tips are helpful in shifting your mindset, getting out of your tunnel vision about doing your best and being perfect and not cutting yourself some slack and looking at it from other perspectives, realizing that no matter how perfect you think you are, somebody is going to find fault. 
You know, realizing that at the end of the day or at the end of a lifetime, perfectionism was never the thing that people are happiest about and proudest about. And really, guys, don't be afraid to look around you and lower that bar. I've listened to a number of very successful podcasts in recent weeks where you can hear the hosts sucking their teeth and their stomachs gurgling and dogs barking in the background, and they seem to be doing just fine. Next up, my thoughts on another clause from the social contract. Don't be difficult. Don't be difficult. Or, as it is often phrased to yours truly, why do you have to be so difficult? People who tell you or expect you to not be difficult are really telling you to not be happy, to not go after what you want, and to not push back against what you don't want. And I call bullshit on that. I am sick and fucking tired of people who don't understand me telling me I'm the one who's difficult, especially when it doesn't impact them in the least. And, you know, I'm not saying you have to go all Sally and when Harry met Sally, but if you want your steak well done, which I do, and you can send the hate mail now, I don't think it's a big deal for me to be really clear about that with the waiter on the front end because often I will order my steak well done and it'll come out medium because nobody gets it. Nobody understands that what I want is what I want. So I have to say on the front end, hey, I want my steak well done and just so you know, I'm real serious about this. Definitely please cook the steak all the way through. I understand it won't be as juicy as everybody else's steaks, but I want it well done. And some people, my dining companions, my husband, might look askance at that. They might think I'm being extra difficult, but I'm just ensuring that I get what I want because I know from long experience that if I'm not really clear about it and spend a few extra seconds making my wishes known, I'm not going to get what I want. And then I'm going to have to be even more difficult on the back end. And nobody wants that. So with regard to quote unquote being difficult... There is nothing wrong with liking what you like and asking for what you want or pushing back on what you don't want. You don't have to be an asshole about it and you don't have to toy with people just for the fun of it. But there are plenty of ways to get what you do want and not get what you don't want out of life. For example, if you have a roommate situation and that person is leaving not just a mess around the apartment, but like really disgusting stuff that attracts bugs. It is not being difficult for you to put your foot down and ask for, nay, demand some more help around the house. That doesn't make you difficult. That makes you an adult without a roach problem. And what I really want to stress here is that you never get what you never ask for. So another example of other people perhaps perceiving you as being difficult would be getting the best room you can at a hotel. If you're bothering to call up and make a reservation, why not ask a couple of questions while you're at it? You know, you could say, I just don't want to be in the room next to the ice machine. You could say, I'd love to be on a corner if you have any available. You could say, as I often do when I book hotel rooms in New Orleans, I do not want a window that opens onto Bourbon Street. There's just nothing wrong with asking for what you want, especially in a situation where it's the other person's job to try to give you what you want. You know, spend a couple of minutes on the front end getting that all squared away so that on the back end you don't have to be difficult and switch rooms because you realize that you did end up next to the ice machine and you should have just asked to be at least 
three doors down from it from the outset. Or, I might add, feel like it's too difficult to be that hotel guest that asks to be moved upon arrival and then suffer through a three or four day visit with the clanking sound of the ice and all the people that are hopping down to your end of the hallway, opening and closing that metal door, talking to each other. In my experience, the people heading for the ice machine, particularly late at night, are already drunk and looking for more ice to put in their whiskey. So yeah, be a little quote-unquote difficult on the front end and save yourself a lot of grief on the back end. Same thing goes for getting good seats at the movie theater. And, you know, good seats for you might be bad seats for me. I don't want to be in the front row. I don't really want to be in the middle. I like an aisle just in case I have to pee. But the problem for me is that a lot of my friends don't have the same requirements and opinions about the seats they want in the theater, and a lot of them are willing to show up two minutes before the lights go out and just take what's ever available, and I'm not. So if a group of us are going to go to the movies, I don't get stuck in that situation where I'm buying the tickets for everybody and then I have to wait until they show up to hand them their ticket at the door. I'm going in, and I'm going in as early as I want to go, and I'm going to sit wherever I want, and it's not like we're going to be chit-chatting during the movie, so it doesn't really matter if we sit together. The point is that we will see each other on the back end, go out for a drink, and talk about how much we loved or didn't love The Hangover 2, which, in my opinion, was a piece of shit in comparison to the original A Near Perfect Movie. And finally, on the you-don't-get-what-you-don't-ask-for tip, uh, the same goes for appointments at your convenience. You're trying to go to the doctor, you're trying to go to the dentist— uh, whatever it is, you don't have to take the first appointment they give you if it's not convenient for you. You can ask for a different one, or you can not even wait for them to offer an appointment time. You can give them three times that would be convenient for you. I don't know why so many people in my life think that they are at the mercy of whatever the first option is that's handed out when they could preempt a bad option by deciding on three good options for themselves and offering them up and making the party on the other end do the choosing. In most of these situations, a doctor, a dentist, a real estate broker, they're just filling up their day. They don't really fucking care if you're there 10 a.m. or there 2 p.m. So ask for what you want. You may have been conditioned to believe that that's being difficult, but I think it's just being smart. And related to all of this, of course, is the flip side. You don't have to settle for what you don't want. Being difficult can look like asking the questions you're not supposed to ask. This is another part of the social contract where I feel like we all pussyfoot around a lot more than we need to. And it's something that it took me a long time to learn. My husband was a real estate broker when we lived in New York City, and he's a hardline negotiator. He's so good on behalf of his clients, and he used all of that wisdom and accumulated knowledge and natural instinct to coach me so many times in my own career on negotiations, both for myself and for acquiring books that I wanted to buy as an editor. And he said, ask the questions you're not supposed to ask. That doesn't mean wildly inappropriate questions. That just means questions that the other party is sort of playing chicken with you, daring you not to ask. So for example, if you get offered uh, a promotion and a salary increase, and you frankly think something doesn't smell right about this amount, and you don't want to accept it, 
One of the questions that your boss is probably betting on you not asking is, hey, what does so-and-so who has the same position that you've just offered me take home in a year? Or tell your boss you'll think about it and go ask so-and-so yourself. You know, the worst response you're going to get is, I'd rather not say. But it's possible that you're going to acquire some really valuable market knowledge that's going to make you better able to negotiate for what you're worth. So remember, you don't have to take the first or only offer. You don't have to settle for what you don't want. You can be difficult by asking the questions you're not supposed to ask, and you just might get somewhere. Another tip is what I like to call lay down the law, and this is just thinking like and acting like a lawyer. They are trained to throw everything at the wall and hope that some of it sticks. So ask for way more than you want, or if you've been offered something and you're not ready to accept it, ask for way more than you think is necessary to get you to that level of acceptance. Again, worst case scenario, the original offer remains on the table. But best case scenario, you get everything else you asked for, and somewhere in the middle, you get a bunch of the stuff you asked for and the other party feels like they've held their own in a negotiation by continuing to say no on a few other things. And this works in personal relationships too. You know, if you really want to go to a football game on Thanksgiving Day and you're pretty sure that your wife is going to say no, you could ask for season tickets and negotiate down. Another tip, establish the precedent. If somebody comes to you asking you to do something for them and you do not want to do it, you can be very clear with them about the reason why, which is that the last time you agreed to do this, something bad or unpalatable happened. You know, you can remind them of your shared history. And instead of being difficult for saying no, maybe you've been a little bit difficult for forcing them to remember what they put you through last time. Either way, you don't have to do it again. Tip number four, employ shock and awe. If your family thinks you're difficult now for having an inflexible I don't travel with children policy, you could propose a deal. You could agree to go on that Disney family cruise this year if they agree to let you take your niece to get her first tattoo on her 16th birthday. I bet you'll get a counteroffer. And my last tip on being difficult, which actually makes things less difficult for everyone, is to master the walk away. Personally, and thanks to my husband, I'm a decent negotiator now, but I don't love the process, and I also despise inefficiency. So sometimes I take a shortcut. I come to my bottom line, and I just tell somebody up front, if they don't want to meet me there, I'm willing to walk away. Um, you know, this gets you out of the cycle of back and forth and perhaps anxiety or bad feelings or potential for things to blow up in your face if you decide on the front end at which point you are fine with them blowing up in your face and you communicate that to the person on the other end and it's up to them. And finally, with regard to being difficult, you can use your powers for good. In the end, everyone is better off with a difficult person in their corner. You stand up for what you believe in and what you want, and other people need you to do that for them when they can't bear to be difficult for themselves. Your family should be thanking you for not ending up with that hotel room next to the ice machine. 
Your friends should be glad that you know yourself well enough not to create unnecessary drama five minutes before a movie starts. You're already sat down where you want to be eating your popcorn and you'll see them after. And on a more serious note, being difficult and having the courage of your convictions is admirable. It means that you're going to be willing to go out there and help other people when they feel like they can't or don't know how to help themselves. So shift that mindset and be glad that you're the kind of person that other people can count on to stand up for them, to defend their honor, to ask the questions that you're not supposed to ask, and to get better results for you and for them. Okay, guys, there is another clause in the social contract that I wanted to get to today, but I think I'm running out of time to do it justice, and so I'm probably going to do a whole episode sometime in the future on breaking and busting the clause. Don't be weird. Um, I want to talk in depth about letting your freak flag fly, why you should do it, why it's good for you, and why it's good for everyone around you, but I really wanted to get to mental redecorating in episode 15. So I'm going to move on to that. But first, a quick reminder. I do a segment once a month called You Asked For It. It's an audio advice column. And I take questions from listeners, anonymous. You put them through on my website at nofucksgivenguides.com slash podcast or email me podcast at nofucksgivenguides.com. And I answer as many as I can get to in one episode. Like I said, it airs once a month. And you can listen to episodes 4, 8, 12, and next week, episode 16, to get all the you asked for it you could possibly want or need. For now, I'm going to move on to mental redecorating and then the NFG tip of the week. Speaking of my you asked for it audio advice column, I touched on mental redecorating in an answer a couple of you asked for it's ago. It was a listener who had problems quieting her negative self-talk. And as I said, mental redecorating is less about eliminating shit from your mind than it is about moving it around and sprucing it up. I call it feng shui with a side of fuck that shit. And I want to reiterate that in this podcast episode and in my book, You Do You, I'm not trying to change what makes you you. I'm trying to help you work with it. So mental redecorating has two steps. Step one is you identify your weaknesses, either what you're convinced are your weaknesses or what other people seem to indicate are your weaknesses. Those other people come under the umbrella term judgy McJudgersons, and I talked all about them last week. Step two in the mental redecorating process is simply to refresh the way you look at or deal with those weaknesses or both. So, for example, someone says you're nerdy, you mentally redecorate that into smart. We're not looking to put limits on your thirst for knowledge here or to hide your intelligence under a bushel. But if you think that being nerdy is an insult, then you would do well to remember that there is absolutely nothing wrong with being smart. You just need to redecorate the word, nerd. Another example, if people accuse you of being stubborn, you can say, I'm perseverant. I want to get it right. I don't want to back down. If people accuse you of being pessimistic, you can be like, well, I'm actually realistic and it's better for everyone if I have realistic expectations instead of going out into the world with this Pollyanna outlook that I'm likely to get disappointed by. 
If someone accuses you of being weird, then you can mentally redecorate that into being unique. And again, I'm going to talk much more about this in another episode. But first, I want you to try writing it down. List these weaknesses, perceived or otherwise, and then redecorate them and list them as strengths. This is a really easy and really effective way to shift your mindset. Like I said in the beginning of the episode, we're not trying to change what makes you, you. We're just trying to help you think about it in a different way, a better way, a more positive way, and a way that is still absolutely true to who you are and what you want, need, and deserve out of life. And I just want to get into a little subset of mental redecorating right now, and this has to do with body image. I've been very open in my books and interviews I've given about my struggles for my entire life with eating disorders, both anorexia and bulimia, and also with body dysmorphia. And mental redecorating is something that really helped me, along with lots of other therapeutic approaches and time and medication, um, get around to not worrying so much and putting so much effort into changing my body, but more into changing my mind, changing how I perceive my body, what I think about it, and my relationship to it as a source of joy or comfort or, frankly, just not a source of consternation in my life. So if anyone listening today has experienced similar problems with body image, then I just want to suggest giving mental redecorating a try. So for example, that negative self-talk when you look in the mirror or memories of mean shit that other people have actually said to you about your body. These are like unflattering photos that you would never display in your house. And at a certain point while I was writing You Do You, I was forced to kind of remember a lot of just unflattering and nasty and occasionally unintentionally mean comments that people had made about my body and my appearance over the years and that had contributed to this overall problem with my self-esteem and, uh, and sent me down the path into disordered eating. And I realized that this shit did not deserve to take up space on my mental mantle. And I packed it all up and I put it in a cardboard box and I shoved it down in the bottom of my mental closet. And I only dusted it out so that I could talk about this and explain this to my readers and to my listeners. But again, if you're looking at it from the perspective of mental redecorating, you can't necessarily eliminate this negative self-talk and these memories or, you know, future things that people might say to you that are critical about your body. But you can decide that they are not things that you want to hold on to. It would be just like taking the least flattering picture of you that's ever been taken and blowing it up and matting and framing it and hanging it in a place of honor in your living room. Why would you ever do that? So don't give it a place of honor in your mental living room either. Instead, as an exercise, I want you to take a look in the mirror and write down the things you like about yourself. I know there has to be at least one. I hope there are five or ten. You know, in my entire life, as much as there were things I had complaints about and felt bad about with regard to my body, there were always these bright spots and there were always compliments that people had given me that I just wasn't taking the time to dwell on in the same way that I was dwelling 
on the criticisms. And once you sit down and think about it and you write them down, you can take those compliments, whether they were self-administered or whether they're from other people, and those are the ones that you put into frames and hang all over your mental living room. Those are the things that you should shift your focus to. That's the way you should mentally redecorate your space. And just as a side note, it's really important for you to learn how to take a compliment. Um, There's a very funny sketch. I think it's Amy Schumer and a group of other female comedians. And they meet each other in the park. And one of them is wearing a nice hat. And somebody compliments her hat. And she's like, oh, this old thing? You know, this was in the bargain bin at Target. And then somebody else compliments someone else's dress. And she says, this rag? Oh, God, you know, I, I, I have a stain on it that you can't even see. I'm covering it up with my purse. And it goes on and on. And basically, you know, the thrust of this sketch is that women cannot take a compliment until the final moments where somebody compliments the last woman on the screen. And she's like, oh, thanks. And all of their heads explode. So don't be those women. Don't be those people in general. Um, Learn how to take a compliment every once in a while and then learn how to decorate your mental space with it and push all of that other nasty shit into a cardboard box bottom of the closet, or, you know, frankly, you can take it out onto the front lawn and burn it because you don't have to write a book about it and uh, dredge it up someday to give other people advice. Okay, we are running long on this episode, so I'm going to really quickly recap everything we've talked about, which started with uh, the social contract clause, do your best, and perfectionism, how it hurts you, why it makes no sense in the long run, and I gave you a bunch of ways to try to dial it back, including tips from Ina Garten and my dad's ice cream car. We also talked about don't be difficult, why that is a load of crap, and why it's okay to ask for what you want and push back on what you don't want. You are being totally reasonable. Uh, Call me when you start regularly getting help around the house from your messy roommate, good seats at the movies, and convenient appointments. You are welcome. Also, I told you to make like a lawyer, establish the precedent, and if all else fails, employ some shock and awe. Plus, gave you that lesson in mental redecorating. It was a good episode, was it not? And now we have made it to the NFG tip of the week. Learn your ABCs. And by that I mean acceptance breeds confidence. I talk about acceptance a lot on the podcast, especially in terms of accepting reality so that you can work with it. But I also think it's important to accept yourself for who you are. It is a lot fucking easier than wholesale changing who you are. And the more you lean into that acceptance and use your inherent qualities, your nerdiness, your stubbornness, your pessimism to your advantage instead of trying to change or hide them, the better life gets and the more confident you become and the easier it gets to do you. And guys, I realize that it may sound out of reach if everyone has been telling you your whole life there's something wrong with you and I'm the first person coming along and saying there isn't. But as usual in my life, I'm right and they're wrong. So I hope you've taken the last couple episodes of the NFG podcast and my you-do-you mentality and strategies to heart. You have to stop giving a fuck about what other people think and you've got to accept yourself before you wreck yourself. Learn your ABCs. Acceptance breeds confidence. And remember, if you're not doing you, you're screwing you. 
coming up next week an all new You Asked For It audio advice column. So don't forget to send your questions to podcast at nofucksgivenguides.com. And thank you so much for listening to episode 15. If you liked what you heard, please follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. If you follow or subscribe or whatever the kids are calling it these days, that means you will get every episode as soon as it lands, which is Tuesdays. And also, if you have a spare 30 seconds and want to throw me a quick rating or a review, I would really appreciate it. Um, It helps for discoverability for the show. And also, as I said, I just really appreciate it. So don't forget, you can visit nofucksgivenguides.com for any more information on my books, journals, for the show notes for the podcast, downloads I mention on the podcast, and to sign up for my No Fucks Given newsletter, which I send once a month or whenever I feel like it. Thanks again, everybody. It's been fabulous watching this show grow. I appreciate each and every one of you. And until next week, I'm Sarah Knight. No fucks given, not sorry. Sorry.